0: My goodness, it's almost one o'clock. We've gotta get things started.
1: Uh wait! I want to tell you another story.
0: Time to put the book away.
1: But I haven't told you the best story yet.
2: Is it a love story? Yeah. Well no, not really. But it's a really good one.
0: You like it a lot. Welcome to Now Playing's review of Tales from the Dark Side. Death. Terror and revenge. Part of the Stephen King movie retrospective series.
2: It's really best movie of all because there's a happy ending, a really happy
0: ending. Hosted by Arnie.
2: We're all in danger
0: as long as that animal is in this house. Stuart. 40ish. A retentive type, right? I'm on the money. And Jacob. All right. So we each know who it is we're dealing with this podcast contains detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. I warned them, but I wouldn't listen. They found out. They found out. Listener discretion is advised. I should probably get going. Susan's waiting at home for me.
3: Absolutely not. You're not leaving here until you see what's inside Lot 249.
2: Today we're discussing tales from the dark side the movie starring deborah harry christian slater david johansson william hickey james remar ray don chong directed by john harrison come on steve buscemi yeah steve buscemi (laughs) julianne moore there's a lot of people in here even stephen king stephen king's in here
3: acting uh, no but i mean he's involved it's better than creep 3
1: i mean arthur conan doyle's involved bit, <laughs> yeah. if you want to put it that way <laughs> yeah it's
2: it's a it's a real movie i'm excited this is your podcaster from the dark side
1: Arnie Stewart in L.A. and this is the host that always goes to a lot of trouble for a dinner party. Jacob,
2: so here we are with tales for the darks that we're kind of going out of order. We're just doing the anthologies. Sure, Cat from Hell has ties to Creepshow, and yes, it was published originally in Cavaliers Nudie magazine in 1977. But if we're going in book publication order. We'd have to wait until, like, after we're done with Hearts in Atlantis and Dreamcatcher, because this thing (laughs) didn't get collected until just after Sunset in 2008.
3: Yeah, I did hunt down that
2: book to read it, but yes,
3: I guess we're breaking our rule, but I would argue we're... Keeping this within the creep show world because Tales from the Dark Side, the reason why we even have that television show is because of Creep Show. Because that movie was successful enough to get CBS interested in developing a series, licensing didn't allow them to make Creep Show the series, but it did get George Romero to come to television and tell a horror anthology in a series that ran for four years and I feel like I saw at least 20 episodes of.
2: I saw quite a few of those. Being on regular television was a help because I didn't have pay stations as a kid. I remember the theme song very well and and especially the ending little narrations. And they did a couple Stephen King stories. In fact, I went back and re-watched an episode for this review because our director of Tales from the Dark Side here, John Harrison, He directed several of those episodes, including Sorry, Right Number, another Stephen King story, one written specifically for the screen, starring the mom from Growing Pains. Oh, yeah, I remember that one.
1: Now, what year was this on TV? Because I wasn't a big, especially horror anthology person when it came to television. You know, I grew up watching Twilight Zone when there was marathons. I watched that Freddy one because I thought it was going to be scary. It never was.
2: Oh, Freddy's nightmares rocked.
1: Oh, rocked. I was really disappointed. It should get rocks. You should
2: throw rocks at it. (laughs) That is a horrible show. When I was like 12, I was turned on by all the pseudo nudity. (laughs) Just a (laughs) terrible piece of writing.
3: But I I think they made episodes from 1984 to 1988, but because it was syndicated, you know, I think they ran it even for years after that. It was definitely a part of that wave of amazing stories, Hitchhikers, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, all of that, what we were talking about with Creepshow kicking off, it is a direct response to that. And when they ended it, the producer, the co-producer, not Romero, but then went on to make Monsters as well.
2: And... According to Tom Savini, this should be considered the real Creepshow 3. I don't know why they didn't do another Creepshow movie, but this does have George Romero as one of the writers. It does take the cat from hell, which was supposed to be a Creepshow 2 story, but they didn't have the money. And Savini was doing some of the effects. We got here... The composer of Creepshow Directing, he did do, like I said, some episodes of Tales from the Dark Side, but also been in the Romero family of filmmakers for quite some time. Although, I don't know how much hope I should hold out as he also directed Clive Barker's abysmal Book of Blood movie.
3: Yeah, and he also is covering the Dune TV movies that we'll be getting to in November, December.
1: Yeah, I felt like, you know, throw Deborah Harry in some Creep makeup. Animate a few of these cells <laughs> and you do have a creep show movie.
3: Stephen King, George Romero, the same producer, a horror anthology with real actors and a modest budget. Yes. Tom Savini, yeah. This should be thought of as Creepshow 3. I will never think of Creepshow 3 again, but this (laughs) fits within the universe. And again, if the rights had worked out differently, if Warner Brothers had played it differently, Tales from the Dark Side, the series would have been called Creepshow, the series, and we would have never had Tales from the Dark Side, it would have been Creepshow 3. How were the episodes? I have not gone back. I must confess, that music, that opening theme, Man Lives in the Shadow World, that would sometimes Scare me so bad when I was staying up late, I would actually turn it off. It would freak me out, that music. But I would often feel that when I watched the episodes, they were disappointing.
2: Yeah, I'll agree. When I was very young, that opening was the scariest part. Having rewatched Sorry, Right Number, It was very pedestrian. Honestly, the biggest fault is in the writing. It was really badly paced, and that all falls right at the hand of Stephen King. And the fact that it has a really... Nonsensical out of nowhere ending. Again, King's fault. He wrote that as an original screenplay. He eventually published it. It's the only thing he's ever published just as a script. He's like, here's my screenplay I wrote for that and I'm putting it in a collection. But it was okay. It was intriguing enough. It just kind of fell apart. The production values were cheap and you could tell they were just using a couple of sets and maybe six actors tops in the entire episode. Yeah. They had a lower budget. They definitely, Amazing Stories had
3: Spielberg money, and this has George Romero money. (laughs) Keep in mind, Romero, by and large, has lived throughout his career as an independent outside-of-Hollywood, Pittsburgh-based filmmaker.
1: Yeah, but I'm surprised about the level of, look, maybe these stars weren't the biggest thing in 1990, like Steve Buscemi, but I was surprised some of the names that I saw come up on the screen as this was starting. I mean, I feel like this Actually, did get some money on, like, Creep Show 2.
3: Yeah, this movie is well funded for a horror anthologies in the early '90s, late '80s. Oh, I was talking about specifically when you go back to those TV shows;
2: they tend to be a little bit rough. I can tell you exactly where I was on May Fourth, nineteen ninety. Though I was excited for this movie. I was in theaters opening day, kicking off summer of nineteen ninety, because. <laughs> You may laugh, but Christian Slater and William Hickey together in a movie? I was there. (laughs)
1: Christian Slater I could see he was a big deal then but William Hickey not so much
2: William Hickey I was strangely a huge fan of his ever since the first puppet master I went to like Universal Studios so they had a murder she wrote Foley and editing thing and at the end they're like we're gonna do a love scene with Angela Fletcher who's the actor we should put in there obviously it was pre-edited they had Tom Selleck but I'm yelling out William Hickey Thinking they're both old people And the editor just stops and looks at me and goes William Hickey, Uh, okay kid And I think he thought I was making up a name By yelling Hickey
3: Mm. (laughs) I can say, yeah, I I can believe that But uh, Puppet Master I mean, never a big series for me
2: Well, he was also in Prizzy's Honor And Sea of Love And I'd seen all of those films Christmas Vacation, Puppet Master I was a William Hickey fan (laughs) And I was really into Christian Slater post-Heathers. And the trailer for this had Christian Slater with an electric knife looking like he was going to go do some murder. I was thinking it might pick up where Heathers left off.
3: Yeah, they were lucky to get him. I do feel like they heavily featured him in the trailers to promote this movie. I too did go to it. I had been going to horror movies and enjoying them in movie theaters as well as renting them every week at the video store. And I was there, maybe not opening day, but opening weekend. I saw this with a high school friend. And the same one that I took
1: to Show 2. And I remember feeling better about it. (laughs) And this is my first time. I I think I vaguely knew about this movie. That box art looks familiar, but have never seen it until this viewing.
2: But the one thing that makes this, in my mind, specifically not... Creepshow 3 is King only is credited with one of the three stories. The big thing about Creepshow to me is King was the writer. He came up with all the story ideas. Here, we've got a table scrap from Creepshow 2. He did nothing new for this one. Keep in mind, Romero wrote the script for Creepshow 2. He had already written the script for The Cat from Hell. But no, we got Lot 249 by Arthur Conan Doyle and Lover's Vow, written by Michael McDowell, not really based on anything.
3: Well, I'll argue that, but we'll, we'll get there when we get there. But Let's get to the plot first.
2: Arnie, you got it? Tales from the Dark Side of the Movie is three stories shown that are told by young Timmy, played by Matthew Lawrence, to Betty, a suburban housewife who has kidnapped the boy and plans to cook and eat him, and is played by Deborah Harry. To Staller, Timmy reads three stories from a book she gave him called Tales from the Dark Side. The first story, Lot 249, tells of a geeky graduate student named Bellingham, played by Steve Buscemi. Why not? Yeah, I just didn't know he worked this early.
1: Took a day off of working at the firehouse to come down to the (laughs) set.
2: He had worked with Coppola, he had worked with Jarmash, he had, no, he was, he was a working indie actor. Well, he's the head of the class majoring in anthropology, but Bellingham's been robbed of a fellowship by Preppy Lee, played by Robert Sedgwick, and Lee's girlfriend Susan, played by Julianne Moore. <laughs> the two framed Bellingham for theft, and that not only made him lose the fellowship, but got him expelled from the university. But Bellingham had received a delivery of Lot 249, an ancient Egyptian mummy. Bellingham reads from the scroll and the mummy comes to life, killing Bellingham's enemies. First Lee is killed, then Susan. But Susan's brother Andy, played by Christian Slater, knows Bellingham is behind it, so he kidnaps the man, chops up the mummy using an electric knife, and sets fire to the scroll that gave the mummy life. But Bellingham has the last laugh. Andy burned the wrong scroll, and as Bellingham reads the correct scroll, Susan and Lee come back from the dead and go after Andy. The second story is The Cat from Hell. William Hickey plays the elderly rich pharmaceutical head Drogan, And David Johanson, or as I knew him, Buster Poindexter, <laughs> plays Halston, a hitman Drogan had hired to kill a cat. See, Drogon believes the cat is from hell, coming to avenge the thousands of cats killed with Drogon's drug experiments. Drogon's two housemates and his aide have all died in accidents that Drogon blames on the cat. Halston agrees to the job, but the cat puts up a fight, clawing at the man and dodging his bullets in every attack. Finally, the cat gets the upper hand and crawls into Halston's mouth, down his throat, killing the hitman. Drogon comes home to find the dead assassin and watches the cat then claw its way out of Halston's stomach. The cat goes to attack Drogon, and the stress causes him to have a fatal heart attack. In the third story, Lover's Vow, down on his luck artist Preston, played by James Remar, watches his friend attacked in an alley by a monster. The beast says it will let Preston live, so long as the artist swears to never tell anyone about the creature. Preston agrees, but when comely woman Kerala, played by Ray Dawn Chong, comes down the alley, Preston tries to save her, taking her to his place to call a cab. The two make love and end up falling madly in love. Kerala knows an art dealer who puts Preston on top. With a thriving career, the two get married and have kids. But on the 10th anniversary of their meeting, Preston tells his wife about the monster he saw that night, the beast that has haunted his thoughts for a decade. But in spilling the beans, he has signed his own death warrant. Kerala was the monster in the alleyway. Hearing the story, she and their children transform into devil beasts. And Kerala, screaming, I loved you, kills Preston. But with that story, Betty can wait no longer to cook Timmy. But Timmy has one more tale. He narrates his own escape, making Betty trip on some marbles, then pushing her into the human-sized oven as credits roll. So three stories were kind of back in Creepshow 2 territory, a much smaller scope of this film. And yet I feel like they have the
3: budget for it. Whereas last time, you know, I felt like they... Did not have enough to do what they wanted to. I do feel like all of these are well nourished. They, you know, I'm not going to say the special effects are great, but they're on par with what you'd expect to see in a horror movie in a theater in 1990.
1: Yeah, just with the setup of this wraparound story, I mean, there's actual cinematography. They're setting up this small town. I mean, it's weird that they're going for a Hansel and Gretel type thing, but that's what they're going with. But, you know, you got Debbie Harry there. <laughs> Blondie. With all her utensils. Yeah, Blondie. Was this her follow-up from Videodrome? I, I don't usually think of her as an actress.
2: Yeah, I don't usually think of her as a suburban housewife. I think of her, you know. Well, she's a witch yeah yeah but she's certainly an 80s yuppie witch the idea is that you know obviously
3: they're peeling back the veneer which again was the whole theme of the opening credits of the tv series was that you know they'd have these pastoral americana shots of bridges and barns and and then the image would go into photo negative and they'd be like there's a dark side well that's what they're doing here as well that beyond this small-town America, and she's, you know, waving at priests and the mailman and seems to just be coming home from an average day of grocery shopping and preparing for a dinner. We know in that first shot inside her house, there's somebody in a closet, the doorknob is turning, and there's a big wicker broom right next to it. It's it's starting to tell us that there's something witchy about this suburbanite.
1: And I like that it feel again, it goes back to that feeling from the original creep show. Now it's not Tom Atkins screaming at his son, what a horrible kid he is, but the fact that she's so nonchalantly like pulling out these tools to skin this kid and scrape his guts out, and she's like, okay, it's twelve minutes a pound. Like the casualness of it, I, I like that vibe.
2: Yeah, it's Hansel and Gretel by way of a thousand and one Arabian Nights, right? Because I definitely, when I saw this in nineteen ninety, saw the Hansel and Gretel. She's feeding him cookies, trying to fatten him up, and gonna put him in an oven but the way he is going to stall her is just telling stories and of course that child is the brother of joey lawrence
3: Whoa! (laughs) Yep. uh, Later, it's even mentioned that his brother is sick and that he was going door to door. The reason why he got caught was he was trying to solicit money from neighbors to try and help his brother with whatever ailment it is.
2: Oh, I thought he said his brother had a paper route and he got sick and the kid filled in on the paper route and that's why he got caught.
3: Oh, I heard got sick. I don't know. I assumed it was Blossom. You know, who knows?
2: No, they were selling about a stupid (laughs) paper route.
3: Okay. Give me a break. Nell Carter can do that to you. (laughs)
2: that's right that's where he was from and you know what back then i would have recognized him by face i for some reason watched the lawrence boys do a lot of work i I was a big give me the break fan
3: (laughs) who wasn't but anyway yes we're seeing two people that we may know before and that makes me feel good on a budget that seems semi-professional i feel like yeah this is already better than creep show 2 They're finally able to do what they have wanted to do. It's worth pointing out, though, Romero is not directing this. That he's handed it off to his longtime first assistant director is curious. Why do you think that is?
2: Well, Romero talked a lot in the commentary. I mean, he did work on this, but I got the impression, first of all, that John Harrison was a big driving force on this. I also got the impression that after Monkey Shines... Romero was pretty much done with studio filmmaking. He didn't have a lot nice to say about them, and I'm guessing they didn't have a lot nice to say about him. Okay,
3: well, it would have been nice to see him vindicated, but okay. At any rate, he's handing it to someone in the family, and yeah, this is a guy that's worked on his scores. You know, when you're on independent films, you end up doing whatever is needed on a project, so this guy has worked in all kinds of capacity all the way back to the original Night of Living Dead.
2: Yeah, he's from the... Pittsburgh area where Night of the Living Dead and Romero, you know, his whole crew is the Pittsburgh crew. Mm -hmm. And yeah, Harrison had a lot of history there. In fact, the commentary for this movie is actually so useless unless you just really want to know about their camaraderie and friendship and reminiscing on all the work they've done together.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it feels like a home movie in that way. As all independent films, when you build those relationships and and foster all of that, sometimes it, it does feel like friends just kind of hanging out when they talk about their experience it's like i want to hear about the movie but sometimes it's just like oh what are you up to oh i remember
2: the biggest thing i got out of this is romero loves jaws and 2001 (laughs) (laughs) Hmm.
3: Neither of which do I see heavily influenced in these stories, but they have gone to professionals for all of these stories that lot two, four, nine. I read it. It's a 20 page Arthur Conan Doyle story that he published in between the Sherlock years. It was, he had already been publishing Sherlock stories for about five years
2: and just decided, Hey, I'm going to do this mummy one-off. That's weird. I, when I saw Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, I figured that it had to be Sherlock Holmes in the case of the mummy or something like that. And they just took Holmes out of it. They replaced
1: Holmes with Steve Buscemi.
2: <laughs> it does
3: actually feel a little bit like Holmes because it is narrated by, well, what we would refer to here as the Christian Slater character. His name in the story is Abercrombie Smith, not Andy Smith, but that was a hundred years ago. Nobody is named Abercrombie except a clothing company. So
2: Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> Fitch would argue that point. <laughs>
3: Not as a first name. But anyway, the way it worked was he was a college freshman who had two seniors living below him in this university tower in Oxford. And he sort of finds out through happenstance that one of them has developed this mummy. The the one big difference I would say about this adaptation... And the original is, we are really meant to hate Bellingham for what he does. He is repugnant in all areas. In the story you're saying? In the original, yes. 20-page story, Bellingham, yeah, basically, he pushes a woman in mud, a guy tries to defend her honor, and he gets a mummy for it. And I feel like here, it's better and it plays better that Bellingham is the victim, and he goes to the mummy to protect him from the rich, snotty people, which just happen to be political. By Christian Slater and Robert Sedgwick.
2: This feels so 80s. I mean, this was 1990. The 80s were gasping its last breath, but the preppies with the sweaters tied around their neck like that.
1: It's those sweaters, yeah. Yeah.
2: That late 80s fashion. People always remember
3: the early 80s for the fashion, the fluorescent and all, but it got worse. Once they busted out (laughs) those cardigan sweaters, and then, like, you don't put the sweater on, you tie it around your neck. Tie it around your shoulders, yeah. Yeah, what was that?
2: Yeah, it's it's like a sweater ascot.
1: Yeah,
3: oof. Yeah, the late 80s are much worse than the
1: earlys I know there's pictures of me as a kid doing that, sadly <laughs> enough.
2: Mm-hmm. I was more the Christian Slater type thing with the knit sweaters that with the V-neck. Yeah. It was bad. But yes, this whole... The preps versus the nerds thing. It plays better. We know what it is. And then in a
3: short, when they only got so much time to, to get through it, it's helpful to have shorthand.
1: And we know there's this fellowship, the dumb jock. I'm just assuming he's dumb. He cheated, but he may be very smart. But because he's a jock, we... He got his sister to write it. He cheated. Now, they set up Bellingham. They talk about this Zuni-tiki fetish. Look, I guess I got to look up the word fetish in the dictionary. I only know one definition. (laughs) I thought, did they spread rumors that Bellingham was, like, rubbing his dick on artifacts? Like, Mm.
2: (laughs) wow. (laughs) (laughs) I know fetish in a broader term than sexual, but I don't know it as a
1: object that you'd actually collect. Yes, I did not know that definition. (laughs) Well,
3: because I have seen Trilogy of Terror, I can help you guys out here. There is a tiki fetish doll that attacks Karen Black in the third segment of that. And I think anytime you're going to do a horror anthology, you got to reference Trilogy of Terror. It's one of the classics of the genre. So I think that's why they threw it in here. It could have been any artifact. The point is, is that Bellingham lost a fellowship not for his own merits, But because he was having to stand accused of stealing an artifact that just happens to be an African tiki doll.
2: And that's the only reason he lost, right? Because Lee is talking about how Susan also wrote his paper. And I got the impression from that that Susan might be able to write a paper to outdo Bellingham. But then... They talk about how he just was disqualified because he was under investigation for theft at the time. And so I guess even her paper wasn't good enough. It was just good enough to put Lee in second place, and then they had to steal a fetish in order to knock Bellingham out of first.
3: Yeah, and again, this is all for the movie that the Susan character is awful. I mean, in the, in the story, she's not really involved. It's just mentioned about the fact that Bellingham is engaged to her, and he's such a toad. How could a guy like that be engaged to such a nice girl? And again, we are never to think of Bellingham having any quality attributes. He's a strange man that performs strange magical habits and he brings this mummy in. It's not totally clear to me, but I think he gets possessed and experimenting with Egyptian languages and mysticism, it he gets in over his head and that's why he starts using the mummy.
1: Yeah, at one point in in this segment He's cutting the mummy open. He's pulling out scrolls. I thought he said something like, oh, I can't even read those. But we do see him reciting some spell later on.
3: Yeah, I don't know in this movie version what Bellingham knows. It's mentioned the fact that he pays to even go to this college by reselling valuable antiques. And then he might have just bought this sight unseen. I don't even know. He bought it being called Lot 249. Did he know it was a mummy? I don't know. But he certainly knows a lot about mummies.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure either. I think he knew. He doesn't seem surprised by what's delivered. And they call it Lot 249 a lot. But it almost feels to me like he ordered it maybe after he was accused of theft. It's like buying a gun to go kill somebody. It was here with a purpose. It wasn't coincidental timing. Yeah, it
3: does kind of feel that way. And I think it it works well that way, that it's written that way, that he's like, oh yeah, I lost the fellowship, but what I'm going to get now is even better than that. And I presume that must be revenge. Or at least he knows that he can do something with this mummy that's going to impress the world, that he can base future papers on. And I mean, yeah, if you can raise the dead, it doesn't really matter what that guy does with the fellowship. You're cooler.
2: Of course, this is again the last gasp. Of the 80s, because when Lee shows up, all Billingham is talking about is how he can sell it for profit. Yeah, and we do
3: hate these guys. Again, it's helpful to have shorthand. We really do look forward to seeing this mummy rise from the dead and kill them both. I don't know how you feel, Arnie, with Christian Slater, but I, I find him repugnant here as well. I mean, even in Heather's, he ends up being a villain there, and we want to see Winona Ryder. Get vengeance on him. So I'm okay if they're targeted.
2: When I was that age, I rooted for him, even at the end. It's like, but Winona, don't you see he's right? (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, again, he has star
3: wattage charisma, some of it stolen from Jack Nicholson, but even here in this small role, when he really wasn't anybody, I don't think that they knew when they made this that Heather's was going to turn into what it was. So, yeah, he stands out here maybe bigger than he should. And maybe he's a little more innocent because it's Susan that wrote the essay. The other guy got the fellowship undeservedly. He just kind of knows about it and didn't report it.
1: Yeah, I feel like everyone here, it's kind of like Father's Day. If they're not, you know, some weird Freudian abusive father, well, they're repugnant rich people at the very least. Like even Bellingham is just so creepy. I don't know if he's totally sympathetic. He's going to send mummies out to get people and Christian Slater when he's cutting up that mummy later on I don't know if I feel like I'm kind of on his side like I I don't totally hate him I, I feel everyone's kind of in this morally gray area in this segment I like it that they're all
2: bad people you know
1: yeah that's the right mood
2: yeah I'm kind of tired of bad people do something to a good person here we've got all this moral ambiguity I feel like Billingham I mean it's played by Buscemi so right there there's a creep factor yes and He's ordered a mummy. The most innocent person in this is Andy, who's complicit of some of the knowledge. He knows Susan wrote the paper, but we do get one scene of Susan and Lee, and Susan's like, how much does he know? So that they're keeping Andy in the dark about the fetish, but... He does seem to be the best character, but again, I was brought in by the trailers thinking he was going to be like Heathers, and he was cutting people up when I see him with that knife, and especially since it started with Debbie Harry wanting to cook a kid, I thought maybe he was going to be a cannibal or something. I'm a little disappointed that he only uses it to stop a mummy. It's still questionable But he seems like the most noble guy in this story and that all he really wants to do is make sure he isn't killed by a mummy.
1: Well, what's so funny is when Steve Buscemi brings the mummy to life, like the power goes out and you see this figure walk out the door and they just think Steve Buscemi's like, oh, someone just broke in. They think it's a thief. Like he doesn't even realize it's a mummy at first.
3: The Steve Buscemi knows, but Christian Slater doesn't know. And yeah, it, it's, it's part of the game. I do think we're to think that Bellingham has gotten this to get revenge on Lee and Because that's the first place he goes to. And one of the more satisfying scenes. I do love the fact that the mummy is going to mummify the people that he killed. Not only is he there to kill. But he's going to remove Lee's brain from his nose. Just like it was done to the mummy. And I thought that was fitting. Given the fact that this guy. Well if he's not stupid. He's at least not using his brain matter. So that's a good way to kill him.
1: I really like that they, you know, they set it up. Buscemi's character, Bellingham, talks about what they would do to mummies, pull the brains out, stick flowers in them. And we're going to see that, you know. Lee's going to get his brains pulled out. The sister Susan, she's going to get stuffed with flowers. Cut I I like that the mummy, his kill tactic is to make people mummies.
2: I love the tone of this piece, though, because when the mummy is shambling about or when he's preparing the coat hanger to go rip out Lee's brains, Mm -hmm. it's just so casual and a little comedic. This isn't going to be truly frightening this isn't going to compete with hellraiser for scares so they're doing it right in realizing hey it's a mummy it's going to be a little campy remember the universal mummy pictures haha ha. and yet he still looks kind of gnarly but he's just kind of a playful mummy you know
3: yeah i think technically this is really good stuff here with the design of the mummy the way that they use tracking shots we had that scene of him As he is undoing a coat hanger, that's he breaks into Lee's apartment, first thing he does is go to the closet. We have a shot in in one single take where it passes the mummy, unwinding the hanger so he can have a hook. And then we see Lee approaching with a tennis racket. Like, that's going to defend him from whatever is broken in. And by the time he rounds the corner, the mummy is gone. It's playful comedy. Yeah, it does remind me of Abbott and Costello and the mummy. I mean, and that's what they're going for. I do think that this is probably... My favorite segment of the three.
1: Yeah, no, it is my favorite segment, and I do like the look of the mummy. A lot of it, again, I don't know how scary, scary any of this stuff really is, but I like the horror look. I like this mummy, his face. It's not cheap. Maybe I'm reacting to that as well. Like, it actually looks like they had money for this, but the mummy has a great look. It's not that stereotypical, because they cut all the bandages off, so it's not all wrapped in paper like Susan's going to end up being later on when she gets (laughs) killed. Mm
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I I like the design of this. And I like that, yeah, that these characters are... It's not morally questionable. It's like the smartest one is going to win. That's the competition. It's like the fellowship. It's like the best person is going to get the money here. Not maybe the morally the best person. I don't think it's right that Bellingham has summoned a mummy because he didn't get the money. But at the same time, I, I, you know, you can't say that Christian Slater is justified in attacking Bellingham because He killed his sister and his brother. We understand it. Nobody's doing the right thing. But the way I feel is the smartest person is going to get away with it. And that's the competition here.
1: I do love when Christian Slater, like he ties up Bellingham. He gets the electric carver. He's like because the power's always going out when that mummy's around. So he gets the battery powered knife. Like <laughs> he's got a little bit of brains in there. He might not mm-hmm. totally outwit Bellingham, but he he's smart enough to go with a something that's self-powered.
2: The only thing I don't understand is after the mummy kills Lee, Susan continues to frame Bellingham by putting the fetish in his apartment because Lee had won the fellowship. Lee was killed but Susan she just keeps going after Bellingham she doesn't have any knowledge that Bellingham was the cause of Lee's demise that's the one thing that I kind of condensed it in my plot summary because it makes more sense to me that they do their stuff to Bellingham and then Bellingham gets his revenge not that Bellingham kills Lee then Susan randomly still gets him kicked out of school.
3: Yeah, I I mean, for whatever reason, I like the way that Julianne Moore plays it. That, you know, normally you walk in and you see your boyfriend's brains in the fruit bowl. You might scream, you might be upset, call the cops. She's a cool customer. She's like, no, 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 I got my own plot. And while I don't totally get what her beef is with Bellingham, I get that she really wants him to go down. And I don't think it is because he is responsible for sending the mummy to attack her boyfriend, she didn't like her boyfriend. I mean, she makes it clear in her death scene right before she gets it. She's like, "Oh, it's a cheap ring, and I don't like the flowers." That she's spoiled too, you know. I she's calculating, and the problem is she's just not clever enough to stay ahead of what Bellingham is plotting, which is yeah, to send the mummy, and it's going to
1: turn her into a wrapped corpse as well it's the 80s of course she doesn't like the ring and and all his cheap stuff
2: yeah i mean he was wearing a sweater around his neck we're we're in <laughs> trading places territory here
1: i also like the way that this
3: kind of plays off of the frame story that you know it's a story about people being carved open and it was mentioned that timmy is going to be stuffed the fact that we're going to see that being done with these characters it kind of makes sense that timmy chose this story specifically.
1: And I like that we haven't had it for the last two creep shows, but for Tales of the Dark Side, they brought back irony. We'll see that Andy thinks he's burned the scroll that brings this mummy to life, but Bellingham, has he's got some great line. You know, he wouldn't be able to tell, like, actual Egyptian from, I don't know, third century Greek porn or something like that. Yeah, it was
2: an erotic drawing that he had him burn up. There, There's some humor there for sure.
1: Yeah, and he... Brings two mummies back. He brings back Lee and Susan to come get... Andy I like that little bit again I don't know if that's irony irony but it feels like the right twist for a creep show or or, or a creep show type of anthology movie
2: it also pays off that the mummy mummified them so there's still mummies around to bring back
3: yep yeah, I agree it's uh, smarter really than the original story the story kind of just ends with the Christian Slater character barging in and saying you're not going to do this with the mummy anymore burning the mummy and the guy got expelled it was You know, (laughs) it's a different era. I mean, that's Creepshow 3 territory. (laughs) (laughs) i mean conan doyle i think he was just introducing people to the idea of mummies it was it would not have been something that i would have thought his audience was that familiar with so in and of itself just thinking about something rising from the dead would have been novel in 1890 but in 1990 yeah you got to have a little more stakes and i think that they successfully update and energize this very old-timey story
2: then our second story the stephen king story we've waited for years to see brought to the screen after getting cut for creep show 2 the cat from hell and my man william hickey here in a wheelchair (laughs) you know he was in a i think he was in a wheelchair too from in puppet master of memory serves i don't think i knew he could walk until he was on wings Here's the thing, I remember this one
3: being the weak link of the three, and I think that may be true, but it's better than the story in which it's based. I went back and read Cat from Hell, and honestly, it feels like the idea of a story. It's kind of a funny premise, a hitman hired to kill a cat, but I don't feel like King really milks the most out of that premise.
2: I read it too, and it, it really follows this very closely for the first half. The whole Drogon telling everything that went on, that's exactly like it is in the book, although we'll talk about how they do it here, how they show it. But then, yeah, when the assassin is with the cat, I do feel like King's story, well, Romero fleshed it out a little bit, gave it some more humor, gave it some more suspense. So yeah, this is a bit better than that little short story.
1: I always feel like there's one story that's kind of just more humorous even though it's got elements of horror and this is a great setup like a hitman hired to kill a cat i don't think they do anything with that premise though
3: yeah it's funny it makes you wonder why they didn't put it in Cat's Eye, but I guess we were supposed to like the cat in that one, so they couldn't do it there. Here, you know, this is cats are evil, and he's a stray black cat. But was it in the original story that Drogan was this pharmaceutical guy that tested on cats? I don't remember that. Yes, it was. Okay, well, I
1: skimmed over that. You don't test on cats. Test on chimps. They're more like people <laughs> than cats. Or rats. That's where you start off with. I don't know anyone that tests on cats.
2: Well, that's why all the cats die
3: but this isn't a real cat this is like a revenant that's coming back to get vengeance and all his cat kind
2: so that makes him a hero in a way and i was getting some pet cemetery off this too first of all we've got a character in here drogan's servant is named gage which was the name of the little kid from pet cemetery you've got an evil cat attacking people which is in pet cemetery i think that You know, King had stopped writing Pet Cemetery for quite some time. I think when it was on the shelf, he's like, I still have to do something with Gage and a cat. And so I've got to do this story.
3: Yeah, like I said, it's an idea for a premise that he had that he never worked. At. Like, when he finally gets to it, when we get to Pet Cemetery in a couple of weeks, it really won't resemble what happens here much. But I think because this is an anthology, again, Trilogy of Terror, they're trying to go back to Karen Black being chased around by that little African tiki going, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah except this time it's a cat going meow 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 and we know when it strikes midnight all the victims have died at the stroke of midnight we know that buster poindexter is going to get it
2: buster poindexter here's somebody i know marjorie tells me he was in the new york dolls it's a band i don't really know
1: oh he was yes he goes from a glam punk wow hot 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 yeah he was in the new york dolls oh you're right that's okay yes
3: Strange career.
1: It's like Deborah Harry, she got her start in the punk scene and, and then became a pop star. I guess he was going for that same trajectory.
2: He seemed to only exist while I lived in Florida. I lived in Florida from 87 to 90, and in 87, Hot, Hot, Hot came up as well as Hit the Road, Jack. And then he was in Scrooge and he was everywhere, and I think this is the last time I saw him. I moved back to Springfield about two months after this movie.
1: Gone. Cause it's not hot, hot, hot there. It's only hot, hot, hot down in Florida.
2: <laughs> I know. I felt like it was for me.
3: He's got a good character actor face. I do think that he is suited for this story. And, you know, I believe him as both a tough guy and sort of a comedian. He is in over his head, but he doesn't realize it here. But honestly, this is, this is supposed to be child's play, right? It's supposed to be kind of funny, but it's also supposed to be a little tense, right? A, just a little bit. And I don't think that they can get there. I think there's something wrong with the POV. I just think that the camera work isn't good enough to pull off what they're trying to do in the second half.
1: Yeah, I I hate whenever they go into cat vision. I don't understand why he doesn't start with the gun. He gets like a needle full of poison. Just go with the gun. Just shoot the thing. Why do you got to put it to sleep?
2: Well, my... Thinking on this is, first of all, cats jump around. It might be hard to shoot. Honestly, pistols are not all that accurate. He's
1: got a laser scope, we'll see later on.
2: But also he's not expecting much. If you could just inject a cat and be done with it, the short story actually goes in that he actually respects this cat. He sees the cat as a hitman like he is, and so he's going to take the job because he's a hitman, but he's going to do the cat the honor of a good death and try to make it painless.
1: Yeah, it's just, they go for this weird humor like, one point, the cat's going to attack him and scratch his balls, and it's just, yeah, it's that point of view you just see these, like, fake little paws scratching away, and it's just not that
2: funny i actually like the point of view stuff it kind of reminded me of wolf in the black and white with the purple haze around it and man you guys are kind of being hard on this but i like this story i'm laughing when it shows because you mentioned cat's eye one of the big things about cat's eye that third story with the troll is the parents are thinking the cat is stealing drew barrymore's breath right that's the old wives tale well king brings it back here but in this one, the way the cat steals the breath is like humping the face until she's dead.
1: There's nothing scary. Like this is, I'm wondering. Like, are they going for gross physical humor? Yeah, because that cat and it's just such a bad puppet, just sprayed yes. over her face. And again, when that cat's gonna crawl inside of Buster Poindexter's mouth, I'm I'm laughing because it looks just bad.
3: It does. Uh, I mean, I guess this is trying to get back to the cockroaches and the first creep show, the idea that they're gonna just crawl inside him and do whatever to his innards here and bust out when William
2: Hickey comes back. But keep in mind this is all from King's original short story which was actually written before. But this is not how that story ends. It ends with a car accident. And it ends with the cat going down his throat and clawing its way out his stomach.
1: Well in this though, he doesn't claw its way out. It climbs back out of, of Holston's mouth, which I actually like that. Like when it's coming out and it's all like wet and slick from whatever it was doing in his stomach, To come and get Drogon when he returns. Like, I like that shot.
3: And I like the fact that, that the clock stopped... And then it is now going to, in keeping with the cat's modus operandi, that it's going to strike midnight, even though it's morning. And we know that, yeah, Drogon's a goner. And the idea that he's a pharmaceutical giant that can't open his pillbox in time to, to save himself from a heart condition.
1: You know, that's the kind of irony you want. Is he meowed to death? Like, that cat's just meowing at him. And it's because <laughs> he can't take his pill soon enough?
3: Yeah, I think he's mocking him. And why not? I mean, that is ironic.
1: I like this, though. I like the
2: effects with the cat. I like the thought of a hitman going after it. And honestly, Buster Poindexter, I don't see Buster Poindexter here. He obviously... Intentionally went under the name David Johansson for this. He didn't want to be Buster Poindexter on screen. I believe he went as Buster Poindexter for Scrooge.
3: Well, Debbie, Harry's not calling herself Blondie either. I mean, yeah, I mean, those are stage names.
2: But, like I said, I think he was Buster Poindexter in Scrooge the year before.
3: Yeah, I don't remember that one, but you, you may be right. But, uh, yeah, I, th- I think he's pretty good. I think everything's working. I think the technical aspects let this one down the most. That is. If they had had a better dynamic, a better fight standoff between these two, I would have enjoyed this segment more. But as is, it just kind of turns into a gaudy joke that goes on a little too long.
2: It's a joke I enjoy. I wish I knew why the bullets missed the cat. It's almost like the cat has a force field. He's got a laser scope. Because
1: he's from hell.
2: He's not real. Yeah, because he is. he's a phantom cat. Because he
3: is there to avenge all the dead cats. He does not have a corporal
2: reality. He's, he's a ghost and then our third story the love story lover's vow yes james remar gans from 48 hours you know they call this one the original one and technically it is it was
3: created by the screenwriter who wrote many tales from the dark sides as well as beetlejuice and nightmare before christmas his name's michael mcdowell But I actually found out years later, watching a Japanese movie called *Kaidan*, that this is actually a a Japanese legend that was told many years ago, about a century ago, and in that movie, *Kaidan*, which is Japanese for ghost story, they have a segment called The Woman in the Snow, which is very much like this, except the guy is in a blizzard and almost dies, and this phantom lady saves him with the promise that guess what you can't say you saw me and it plays out in similar ways and this does feel like a classic campfire tale
1: yeah no this does feel classic i feel like i've seen some version of this i've i know they've made that japanese story into a movie maybe that's what i'm thinking of but i i do like this has got a gothic feel to it. Maybe because it opens up with gargoyles on top of a building. But I like this gothic romance vibe that this one gives off.
2: Is that supposed to be her at the top of that building? That's kind of what I thought. She looks kind of like a gargoyle.
1: Yeah, no, I took it as she's a gargoyle. Because it's going to end with a gargoyle holding a child, so...
2: Yeah, she's a
3: gargoyle. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. And they don't really even try to disguise that. I mean, I think that, yes, what we have here is, first of all, a classic 80s scenario. I just, the artist, you know, the New York art scene could (laughs) have been bigger at this time. And here's a a failure. Here's a guy that can't move anything. I think he's making like popsicle stick art.
1: Yes, what was, no wonder he's not selling
3: anything.
1: There's a reason
3: it's not moving out of the galleries. I just want (laughs) to say, Robert Klein can only do so much.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, when we see his art later on, it does look like all like weird sculpture, like driftwood, not a painter.
3: It's always fun to watch how art is represented on film at this time sometimes it's it's goofy funny like after hours sometimes like legal eagles with that performance art you're just like what the hell but yeah this (laughs) stuff is bad and it was right not to sell it takes a gargoyle to get this hot in the new york art scene but yes He is a failure at the beginning. He's drinking at a bar. And then wouldn't you know
1: it. Yeah, he gets called by his agent to come to the bar so his agent could tell him he's quitting.
3: Yeah, normally you don't do that face to face. That was kind of nice of him to say that. But at any rate, I I think they just wanted to give Robert Klein something to do because he agreed to do this. And that was a semi-famous TV personality at the time. But the point
2: of it is, is that
3: Jerry the bartender at the end of the night is going to walk him home. And they're only going to get so far as the alley.
2: No reason for the gargoyle to kill the friend, right? I mean, I can't think of one.
1: No, it's just a gargoyle. That's what they do, I guess.
2: I mean, it's not like the friend said, hey, by the way, I saw this monster one time and the gargoyle has to come avenge itself.
3: In the uh, original one, if memory serves correctly, there's an older man and the younger one is spared because he is young with the promise that I'll let you grow old if you don't talk about me, and so.
1: Yeah, that that is what's weird, is it behead, I'm look, I'm glad we're getting some gore. I want this kind of thing in this kind of film. So Jer, the bartender, is gonna get his head decapitated, and so I, I'm liking that stuff, but then the, the gargoyle turns to Preston and is just like, hey, don't tell anyone about me and we're cool. It, it seems a little weird.
3: I think she has a crush. I think what we're to understand is that because Ray Dong Chong is going to run into the scene that the next shot that she might have you know, who can resist James Romare? He's so sexy in The in the Warriors.
1: I feel like Ray Don Chong is given the same characterization as she's given in Commando, where it's like, <laughs> oh, you're just going to fall in love for no reason.
3: I actually feel like this whole segment, you know, it was billed by Timmy as the love story to appeal to Debbie Harry. And it does got a lot of elements of that late 80s, Adrian Lin, nine and a half weeks kind of vibe to it. This whole thing feels like Angel Heart. If you know this movie, I feel like it's been forgotten it's pretty good, if a little bit long, but it was Mickey Rourke and Lisa Bonet in this erotic voodoo romance in which, I won't spoil the ending, but there is a mystical quality to what's going on there, and I definitely feel like they were heavily influenced by that movie, and this is sort of it done in miniature with actors that aren't quite Mickey Rourke and aren't quite Lisa Bonet,
2: but almost. (laughs) Interestingly, this was supposed to be the middle story. If you watch the framing story, you talk about how Timmy saved the love story for last. There's a lot of inconsistencies they pointed out in the commentary because it was supposed to be Lot 249, then lover's vow and then finally the cat from hell and they decided this was the best one to end on yeah it's stronger than cat from hell and i think pacing wise it works well it's a nice change of pace from what we've gotten before it's a lot more calm and yet it's really funny i like the gargoyle puppet it's kind of cute in a like pet way when its lips start moving and things it's you know
1: yeah no i i think because look is anyone fooled that carola is really the gargoyle the fact that she just shows up right of that gargoyle and like goes home with preston and they just bang away mm-hmm. and they're like she's moving in the next day i'm like oh, okay so she's the gargoyle she's falling in love that's why she spared him. that's what's going on here
2: you know i'm glad that you saw that because i was wondering to me, it was really obvious, but then I started second-guessing myself. I said, well, I've seen this movie before, so obviously know no,
3: as a child, as I as a high schooler, I remember turning to my friend and going, I think she's the gargoyle, and him looking at me and going, Yeah, no shit. <laughs> I mean, everyone knew. It was like
2: and I don't think that's the
3: mystery. The tension is not who is this mystery woman that showed up minutes after a gargoyle killed the bartender. It is if he's made a promise. Never to talk about that violent incident. Is she going to tempt him? Is he going to feel obligated? What is going to get him to spill the beans?
1: And that's the problem for me is that There's not that tension. Like, he's always drawing sketches of gargoyles and then hiding them. But I don't feel like she's ever trying to prod him to tell a secret. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's the way you're supposed to go. And after, oh, after 10 years, there's so much tension because I've held this horrible secret. I've got to tell you. I just, I don't feel that is there in this story.
3: I actually like the irony. The idea is that he's finally so in sync with her. That he feels like he can tell her anything. That love is about feeling that close to someone else. That he is truly that connected that on their 10th anniversary, he can finally talk about what happened to him minutes before they met. Because he just, he loves her so much, he can't imagine her being a force of gargoyle evil that is (laughs) going to, to snap out of here when
1: you promise. (laughs) I just wish we saw more tension and and, and more turmoil on his side then if that was something eating him up
2: I wish we got more emotion from them though I honestly feel this is the most poorly acted segment of this whole thing James, Remar, Remar, however the fuck you want to say it I don't get much from him, nor do I get much from Ray Don Chong, even after they've been together 10 years and have kids.
1: Have you seen Commando? This is her rage.
2: (laughs) I know, and it's hurting this segment. That I don't see them madly in love and so close and him being like, I need to tell you this. They're still as awkward as they were that first night together. And the real irony is Jim and on Chong wanted to act together. That's why this happened. It was a big deal, I guess, behind the scenes that they were going to be an interracial couple.
3: Well... <laughs> Do they want to act together or did they want to bang together? I think in this movie's <laughs> vernacular, love is really erotic, you know, spread out against the sheets kind of. I'm surprised there was no wind and rain machine. I mean, it is that really stylized commercial photography kind of love where it's mostly lust.
2: But. I just don't get anything out of them where he would want to make that revelation. And the fact that she keeps finding his drawings and drawers and giving him these looks and things. I don't know. It just, their performances really hurt this entire thing to me and that I don't believe their emotional journey. I'm surprised they have kids together. That weren't a mistake.
1: Yeah. No, what's so funny is about James Remar's poor acting. Like they go 10 years later and like Wyatt's his agent again and like walks in. I'm like, damn, Preston got fat and bald over that ten. Like, I didn't even reply. <laughs> I'm like, oh, wait, that's the art agent. That's not even him.
3: Yeah, and there's no time jump. Like, if that was supposed to be the 70s when they met and this is now the 80s, I don't know. Don't pay attention to that. But I hear what you're saying. Rae Chung Chong is a bad actress, and she didn't work much after this. And, you know, I think the only reason she even got a job is she's cute and she's Cheech and Chong's daughter, or, or rather Tommy Chong's daughter. So, you know, it was nepotism all around but I do think that if she isn't very expressive it kind of works in a Sphinx kind of way I get the sense that she doesn't want to bait this guy she does love him so if he is going to start to edge towards that conversation she's not going to give him any indication that he should tell her the story she is going to let him fail by breaking his promise and that's why we get this scene of I don't know it almost feels like he breaks his marital vow by doing this it's almost a divorce parable.
1: Yeah, which again is weird because he's like confessing something that he's, he's putting trust in her and not holding a secret. It, it just, it feels backwards to me. But I got to say, I do love when that gargoyle like busts out of Raydon Chong's skin.
3: Mm, yeah, it's fun. And the kids, too. I mean, we've seen these cute little... I guess they might be twins or maybe they had two girls. I don't know. But they're huddling in the other room listening to Mommy and Daddy fight. And we're thinking, oh, they're going to be left orphans. No, 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 no. They're going to come out of the bedroom looking like, yeah, the little tiny baby like a
2: dinosaur did they know they were gargoyles that's i I mean they (laughs) seem pretty okay with their transformation were they like transforming into gargoyle and she was teaching them how to goyle while he was out doing art
1: she's telling them okay if you make someone promise not to tell a secret if they do you got to go kill them Mm mm-hmm
3: Again, I think all you're seeing here is the breaking up of the family, which again, the 80s, the divorce, all of that. I mean, it's something. I mean, maybe the author can speak to it. I don't know exactly what he was trying to convey with this. But, you know, it's just heart-wrenching to think that a man that did something out of an act of selfless love complete. Commitment ends up breaking the marriage and the family apart.
1: I'm just disappointed why it got off free. He's going down, getting a taxi. He hears some yells. He doesn't get it though. We're we're just going to see some gargoyles and stone on top of the building again.
2: Yeah, he didn't do anything wrong. He was just an agent.
1: Yeah, that's what he did wrong. (laughs) <laughs> yeah for a, a segment that started
3: off with so much hatred towards artist representation i was surprised he didn't end up in a pool of blood as well but maybe it, it's okay
2: i think his penance was that he was babysitting those horrible things and if you notice i obviously figured out very early hey she's the gargoyle there's a lot of little lines like when he says he's watching the hell spawn and things like that watch it a second time and you're gonna see all of these hints That she is the gargoyle. There's one scene where he's looking at his drawing of a gargoyle. He sets it down and her face is sitting right there in the frame where the drawing was. They're telling you all over the place.
3: Again, I don't think that's the surprise. The surprise is not, oh my god, I didn't see this coming. What else could this story be about? I mean, it is about that. It's again... Will he tell her, and why will he tell her, and what is she going to do once he breaks his promise? And even though she loves him, she has to kill him. That was the pact, and so she honors it. And that is the tragic romance of it. It It's certainly enough for Debbie Harry. She, she's so distracted that she's allowed it to go past one thirty. I don't know how she's going to have time to cook Timmy
2: in time for the dinner party. Well, he didn't eat the cookies, and so he may weigh less than the time she had allotted had he gotten fat. <laughs>
1: <laughs> one cookie away. I just got to call BS. He's like, lures her in, tells her what he's going to do, like has marbles in his pocket that he throws that she trips on like what is this a looney tunes cartoon
2: the way i read it is it's actually like all these other stories something magical is going on he is the storyteller and so because he's narrating it she's powerless she's a puppet in his tale.
3: yeah i feel it's a little lazy but again this wraparound story is fine I wish they had given Debbie Harry a little bit more to do. I would have liked to have gotten to the dinner party, maybe. But obviously, I didn't want... You know, I wanted the kid to win, but...
1: Why not have the kid bring Debbie Harry cooked to the dinner party? That would have been a nice twist.
3: There we go. I don't know. Some kind of escalation. But this just feels like, ah, we got uh, about two minutes and we need to roll credits. So wrap it up here.
2: And
1: look, this is 90 minutes. Great length.
2: Yeah, I mean... The wraparound story from the original Creep Show wasn't all that great either, so it's on par. Yeah, I
3: feel like the ending was more jolting. Is I guess what I would say here. It feels a little bit lazy. I mean, but who wouldn't want to see Debbie Harry get cooked after threatening to kill Joey's brother?
1: <laughs> if she would have gone for Joey, I'd have been rooting for her. <laughs> Whoa, that's hot.
2: On the next very special episode of Blossom, Blossom reveals <laughs> the gargoyle secret. <laughs> So, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend *Tales from the Dark Side*, the movie? Jacob,
1: yeah, you know what? This was a fun little film. I, I, again, I don't think it's anything too scary. I, I, again, creep show—that original creep show. That scared the hell out of me as a kid. I I think that would scare a lot of people, those segments, especially the crowd that it was made for this. They're fun little horror stories that I could recommend. You know, the, the makeup's there. All, all that stuff that was missing from the last two movies. They got a budget again, which goes a long way. The The, the monsters look good. The gore looks good. And the stories are, are pretty well-paced. They, I don't feel like... Any of them go on too long or overstay their welcome. So yeah, this is a recommend for me. As far as the stories go, I mean, Lot 249, that was my favorite. I just, I liked how that mummy looked. I liked how it went after its victims and and the deaths. And then I'd go with The Lover's Vow. Again, some great puppetry and effects there. And I just kind of like that gothic romance between a gargoyle and a, a human. And then... Cat from Hell, it has its moments, but that's the one that it just needed better action in it. And then the wraparound story, again, none of these are awful. It's just that wraparound story, well, it, it does what it needs to do. It, it doesn't do much, but it's fine. But all four segments I would recommend. So yeah, that makes this a, a recommend for me.
2: Stuart.
3: Ambivalent green. Is that a J. Crew color? I don't know. <laughs> it's not on the Pantone chart. <laughs> Nothing here is great, but, you know, nothing here is bad either. I I enjoyed it all just fine, and so I think that if you like this format, and you have enjoyed Creepshow and Cat's Eye and some of those other ones, or you have wanted Creepshow 2 and and other ones to be better than than they were, this fits the bill. This is the standard. This is the par by which it should be measured. And I think that, yeah, fans will be grateful and should think of this as the proper Creepshow 3. Although, I would argue, maybe not as good as Cat's Eye.
1: Creepshow 2, come on, let's forget Creepshow 2 as well. Yeah,
3: well, I I agree. It's better than Creepshow 2, it's better than Creepshow 3, almost anything is. Not as good as Cat's Eye. But completely solid and enjoyable and a fun throwback. And honestly, better than my memory of the TV show itself. Or at least on par with anything that they
2: did. Well, based upon the couple episodes I poked my head at, I did go out and buy the box set. It was like $10 on Amazon. I mean, I liked the series well enough to want to revisit it in spare time. But this had money and that series felt like it never did. Mm. I'm going to give this a pretty strong recommend. I mean, as far as... The consistency goes it's clearly miles above the creep show sequels and honestly i wish it had just a little bit more character because with a little bit more style a little bit more uniqueness this honestly could be better than the original creep show, But as it is, it suffers from a little bit of blandness. I don't actually like the Lover's Vow story, but I like the puppet design of the gargoyles and things. I mean, it's got some good things going. The acting there ruins it. I do like Cat from Hell, though. I'd say my ranking of the story is Cat from Hell is tops. Lot 249 second. I mean, the character's there. It goes on a little long and just... It didn't draw me in the way William Hickey and Buster Poindexter...
1: William Hickey and Buster Poindexter trumped (laughs) Christian Slater for you?
2: I know. Wow, that's...
3: Yeah, that is amazing.
2: And the worst part is, that was the case when I was a teenager, too. I wanted to be (laughs) Christian Slater. I was even working on The Voice. I mean, you have no idea. Combing my hair back. But I felt his character didn't do a whole lot here, and William Hickey kind of did. (laughs) Kind of. (laughs) The cat did. Uh. So I'd say, yeah, Cat from Hell, Lot 249. Then, yeah, the lover's vow and the wraparound story. But it's a solid recommend for the movie. It's a good time. But, you know, I like horror anthologies. I hope someday we get to do Twilight Zone and Tales from the Hood. You know, I didn't think Tales from the Hood would be any good, but it really is.
3: Well, uh, yeah, I mean, certainly indebted to what Creepshow started. I feel like they all do. I mean, maybe they all owe a debt to Twilight Zone and Trilogy of Terror. But Creepshow was the 80s standard. And I do feel like all those ones you mentioned, Trick-O-Treat as well, are in loving homage to what was done by Romero and King. And yeah, I would like to see this done again, either as a Tales from the Dark Side or a Creepshow again. I I do like the format. Maybe even a TV series is the way to go I mean obviously HBO struck gold with Tales from the Crypt I've heard that Tales from the Dark Side was almost greenlit to come back as a CW show but uh, they passed at the last minute they made a pilot and decided nah we don't want to do that They also tried to make a sequel to this one, and uh, they had the stories picked out. It was supposed to have pinfall. Remember that one? The zombie (laughs) bowling one?
2: Can still hope for that Kickstarter.
3: Yep. Also, another Stephen King story that was published in Nightmares and Dreamscapes called Stormy Weather. Very strange. I did read it. It's about killer frogs that fall from the sky. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Isn't that from the Bible? Eh, not these frogs, but yeah, kind of. It's, it's a plague of some kind. And then Robert Block, the author of Psycho, also had one about an artificially intelligent robot that falls in love with a woman and kills almost human you know it's really not about how great the stories are it's how well they do them so if it were this quality yeah i would have enjoyed that sequel
2: yeah anthology horror television had its day i know there's a lot of people including on the commentary here the makers of this film would like to see it come back i don't know if they could do it any better than it was done in the 80s and 90s when there was so much of it but there are certain stories you know that just really fit the short format that this provides and no i've enjoyed this kind of look back and i also enjoyed being able to review radon chong so soon after c thomas howell the soul man co-stars you know so close in proximity on our schedule
1: you are really on a soul man kick lately
2: (laughs) yeah that movie's
3: repugnant
2: but all right Jesus! I only saw it once in theaters, I have no idea. I, I Wait, no, I did see it on cable, like, in the 90s and...
1: You, you know it's about a white man yeah. that goes black, right? Like, that's yeah. all you need to know. James Earl Jones <laughs> is hysterical
3: in it. <laughs> never would be made today, I'll just leave it at
1: that.
2: No, it wouldn't, which is, you know, no it wouldn't.
1: <laughs> oh, well, we got white chicks, they did a reverse one, so you just, never say never. Yeah, uh, equally
3: entertaining, I'm sure. <laughs>
2: and speaking of our donation drive if you want to hear hitcher it is available if you donate gold now and this friday for our gold donors house no not the tv show about doctors
1: Uh uh-oh i've watched the wrong thing all six seasons of it
3: (laughs) I wonder what you did all the last week. You're like, I'm still watching House. How is that possible?
2: That's funny because I did spend that much time because I've watched all four houses and the the commentary for House 1. There's a lot of houses
3: here. There is. It was the second film we're covering. We're going chronologically through Horror of 86. Hitcher came out in January '86. House came out was a big hit actually and yes did Spawn 3 sequels actually I'm going to argue Spawn 2 sequels and then there's yeah House 3 we'll talk about that on the show all of them are going to be brought up and discussed on the show I hope you can join us Friday for that should be a fun discussion
2: so Jacob Stewart thank you for joining me and until next time don't you just love happy endings happy endings Goodness, you really did keep the best one for last, didn't you? No, no. I saved the really, really best story for now. You should have told me the really, really best story before, because now it's too late.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. I hope you've enjoyed the show. For
1: me, it's nothing but the best. All the time.
0: Now that you've heard the movie review, head to booksandnachos.com to hear Arnie's reviews and analysis of Stephen King's original novels. You're taking those books back to the library now? They're three months overdue. And come back to nowplayingpodcast.com to hear our reviews of other Stephen King movies, such as Carrie, The Shining, Children of the Corn, and dozens more in our archive section. That was good. It was very good. I needed it. I need more of it. I do, too. Right now. Also at our site, hear reviews of other films such as Maniac, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Saw, Riddick, Friday the 13th, The Avengers films, Star Trek, and more. Everything you could want. Everything you could ever want. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com and come back each week for another new movie review.
2: You've brought me 10 years of happiness, 10 years of success, 10 years of a perfect life.
0: You deserve everything I can give you. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Why, I'm broke. I can't live on nothing. And I can't live on 10% of nothing. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com.
1: Because I wasn't born with a silver
0: trust fund in my mouth. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. I believe in being prepared. Now Playing is edited by Heath and Arnie.
2: Let me out of here! Help!
0: Now Playing credit narration by Brock.
3: You told that very well. Thank you.
0: The film discussed in this podcast is the property of its original copyright holders and no infringement is intended. Now Playing Podcast is not affiliated with the makers or distributors of these films. The rest of your nine lives are going in one bump sum. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated.
3: Mm, time to go. This kind of sincerity is bad for my self-image.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now playing as a vinganza Media Production, copyright 2016. All rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of vinganza Media, Incorporated. You'll never see me again.
2: But I'll find a way to keep in touch. coming to avenge the thousands of cats killed with Drogon's drug experiments. Drogon's two housemates and his aide have all died in accidents that Drogon... Drogon's two ha... Deep breath.
3: You hate that word, Drogon, and so do I.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But when comely woman Kerala, played by Ray Dawn Chong, comes down the alley, Preston tries to save her, taking her to his place to call a cab. The two make love and end up falling madly in love. Carola, Carola knows an art, Carola? Carola. I would call her Crayola, but you know. Yeah, it's the worst (laughs) name. It's almost as bad as
1: Ray Don Chong.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But in spilling the beans, he has signed his own death warrant. Carola was the monster in the alleyway. Carola. Carola was the monster in the alleyway. Hearing the story, she and their children transform into devil beasts. And Carola screaming. Carola. And Carola screaming. I love you. <laughs> They're keeping Andy in the dark about the fetish. <laughs> this always sounds so funny. <laughs> but my man William Hickey here in a wheelchair. <laughs> I think he was in a wheelchair too, from in Puppet Master of Memory serves. I don't think I knew he could walk until he was on wings. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't remember him on wings.
2: Yeah, he was. I think Antonio Scarpaci's father. That was the Tony Shaloub character's dad. Okay. Why do I know this? Because I love William Hickey.
3: I I'm just moving on. <laughs> I you know I got no William Hickey opinion,
2: positive or negative. You know lover's vow yes James Remar Gans from 48 hours isn't it Remar I've
3: always heard it Remar you were saying it you were saying it a certain way but I don't know I I, who knows okay you could listen to the commentary so I don't know I thought it was James Remar
2: they just kept calling him Jim okay well yeah.
3: all right well you'll find out <laughs> you'll find out how you said it wrong